Halleluja. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that your grace has provided us this morning to offer to you these songs of worship. We thank you for your wonderful cross. Wonderful because what was accomplished on Calvary, Lord, for the salvation of our souls. The death that our sin was owed to satisfy the just and righteous requirements of a holy God was paid by our Lord and Savior, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we ask, Father, this morning that you would, Lord, create in us a clean heart, Father. Lord, we know that you have done so fully and finally in the application of your blood to our own sin. We also pray that you would continue that work that you have begun in us, that you would continue and that you would fulfill it until the coming of our Lord by transforming us into the same image as Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that these songs would represent our heart's desire And your word would be the means to draw us close to you, to change us and remake us, Lord, into the image that you have intended for us, Lord, that you would equip us for your service, to display the glory of Jesus Christ in our life and to declare that he has come and that in him and him alone is salvation for all who place their faith and trust solely and completely in the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray this morning in our communion service that these elements before us would be meaningful in our experience, that the broken body and shed blood of Christ would be treasured amongst us, that you would remind us, Lord, of the very real sacrifice that you paid once and for all, all of your elect in Jesus Christ, whose sins are washed away. By your precious blood, dear Jesus, and it's in your holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning is our communion Sunday, and uh, at this time, we'll spend some time in the Word, and at the close of our time in the Scriptures, we'll open up the communion table for those of you who are believers today to participate with us in the breaking of bread and the drinking of this juice, representing Christ's own body and blood, broken and shed for us. Today's text will be in Hebrews chapter 2, so turn there with me if you would. And in a moment, in a moment, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. The title of this morning's message is Incarnational Family Ties. Incarnational Family Ties. Incarnational, an adjective form of incarnation. God becoming man in the flesh, Jesus Christ is the idea there. And how that act of God's condescension, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, becoming man, establishes the family ties of us, as we find in Hebrews referred to as sons and brothers and children of God, is connected to Him and what this means for us. So stand with me, if you would, this morning, with our Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2, and let's read verses 5 through 15. Hebrews 2, 5 through 15. 
Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The supremacy of Christ, as we've mentioned, is a theme in Hebrews. The author is laboring to show a church that needed to hear that in Christ and in Christ alone was their hope for salvation, their grounds for unity, their sole reason for gathering and fellowshipping as a church. In the, in the first chapter of this epistle, there were seven quotations from Old Testament Scripture to prove the author's assertion that Jesus Christ is superior and authoritative over every other name that is named, even the highest name apart from Christ that one could imagine, even in the angelic realm. Adding to this list of seven citations from the Old Testament that has begun in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5, all the way through verse 13, are three more references compounding the proof that the author is laboring to add to his assertion that Jesus Christ is superior and sufficient. And in Hebrews chapter 2, these three passages are taken, two from the Psalms and one from Isaiah. In Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8, we have reference to Psalm chapter 8. In Hebrews 2, verse 12, we have a reference to Psalm chapter 22. And then finally, twice, there's made reference to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, and verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 2. Thus, the supremacy of Christ in the opening pages of Hebrews is demonstrated by a compounding case of Old Testament citations. And there, that is, those citations, those prophetic declarations of Christ in the Old Testament, their multifaceted fulfillment in Jesus. In chapter 2, the incarnation of Christ takes center stage. When we say incarnation, we mean 
in flesh. God taking on flesh. Christ born a man of a virgin, Mary, in this time of year. We remember and celebrate that culturally when Jesus was born. But more importantly than the fact of a quaint historical moment that we celebrate by something called Christmas is this perennial historical redemptive truth that God in His perfect nature and character in the second person of the Trinity, Christ, became a man and in so doing fulfilled two conditions that was necessary for our salvation. That He be fully and completely perfectly law-keeping in His character and in his work in this life and also that he be the perfect sufficient full and final sacrifice in a substitutionary way for all who would place faith in him and only in the miracle of incarnation is it possible to have a sufficient payment for the sins of all who are in christ the incarnation takes center stage in Hebrews, especially in chapter 2. And we see this act of God and the sovereign act of redemptive history as key to unlocking prophetic mysteries, prophetic mysteries declared for ages prior. The author of Hebrews situates Christ as first person in three prophetic Old Testament texts. That is, if we write in the first person, we write as follows. I will go there, I will do this. Um, in, for instance, in Hebrews 2, chap- chapter 2, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. And again, the citation from Isaiah eight seventeen: I will put my trust in him. You see, these prophecies are written in the first person in those two examples. Well, it's it's very important to note that the author of Hebrews situates Christ as the first person in these prophetic Old Testament texts. Two of them are from David, as we've mentioned, Psalms 8 and 22, and one of them is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. This formula of the author attaching Christ as the first person fulfillment of these Old Testament texts, this formula reveals a scriptural pattern of a two-stage, of two-stage revelation. There is the illuminating quality of the texts as they were originally given by their human authors. That is, they meant something in relationship to David as he wrote, considering to some degree his own office as king and as a poet and worship leader for Israel, and also as I. Isaiah writes in the first person as a prophet who himself can relate to what is spoken in the first person. But this formula that the author of Hebrews draws our attention to reveals that it is more. That there is a two-stage illuminating quality of these texts. They have a meaning in relationship to their original human author. But they also have a meaning in relationship to the, their author as their authors were types of Christ, and more specifically, in relationship to Jesus Himself. As the author of Hebrews teaches his audience in these passages, we are to look at all of Scripture in, if you will, a Christocentric way. Christ-centered. The Word of God, no matter where we look, is in some way and by some means pointing to Jesus Christ. How does the Word of God do this, especially in passages that are a little more culturally foreign to us? 
or obscured in Old Testament, sometimes apocalyptic, sometimes prophetic language. Well, the author of Hebrews is very helpful in this regard. He teaches his readers and therefore and thereby teaches us ways to view the Old Testament and all of Scripture in a Christ-centered way. The Christocentric character of the Word of God is revealed in his commentary. And what he writes in Hebrews chapter 2 is powerful and sophisticated. The commentary by our author provides staggering answers. Staggering answers to redemptive historical questions and loose ends that might have otherwise been left hanging to our eyes and ears as we read Scripture. But even as I say this, I want to draw your attention to this note. That it is not without challenging the mere human linear thinking that we will arrive at these truths. If we just read the Bible as we would any other book in our linear thinking, in the way we're used to processing information, we will not really even scratch the surface of what is in view here. There is a higher standard of study and meditation that the Word of God demands of those who care about what is in it. Now, oftentimes we hear that the goal of preaching is to make things very simple and accessible. And to the best of our ability, I would agree with that in part. The preacher has a duty to declare clearly the Word of God and as clearly and simply perhaps as he knows how to deliver the truths to the hearer. But I want to also go on to say That if the preacher is faithful to the whole text, and I hope I am today, as far as the Spirit gives me ability before you to do so today, if he is faithful to the whole text, he will not only speak things that are very simple, he will also expound things to the best of the Spirit's ability through him that are very profound. The Bible is not a monodimensional, surface-level, headline-to-headline, mere basic Uh, just superficial journal of things happening. There are layers and layers of intricacy and fulfillment and prophecy and depth and glory and complexity that I will never scratch the surface even in my entire lifetime. And if we combine all of our scriptural understanding represented in this room today, I'm sure we would find in comparison to the wealth and the riches and treasures there are to mine in these pages, it is laughably small, the experience that we have between us compared to the gold mine of worth within the pages of the Scriptures. And this is one of those sections of Scripture that I find particularly challenging. So I'd invite you to listen closely this morning. Listen to three points under this heading, the heading being the Incarnation. The fact of Christ becoming man, Jesus born in flesh, the incarnation explains three prophetic texts. First of all, as we've mentioned, Psalm 8, son of man and triumphant, the triumphant second Adam. Jesus Christ is the triumphant second Adam. What Adam was not but called to be, Christ has fulfilled and is more. Secondly, Psalm chapter 22, the incarnation explains the connection, the family connection of brotherhood to Christ. So our theme will be then brothers and the conquest of Calvary. What what happened at the cross, the passion of Christ and his death on Calvary, 
how that relates to the family relationship of us, His children, and brothers of indeed Christ. And then thirdly, the incarnation explains the concept of us as children and what is a concept in greater scripture of prophetic progeny. There's prophetic children or children given prophetic names as a picture of what Christ would be and what Christ would do in the Old Testament. And the author is picking up on some of these in Hebrews chapter 2. First of all, let's return to our primary text this morning and read verses 5 of Hebrews 2 through 9 again. Now it was not to the angels, to angels, that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and we find as we go through Scripture that the place where it has been testified is Psalm chapter 8, and now the author quotes these words in verses 6 through 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Between verses 9 and verse 10, there's then, I perceive, a shift to explanation or ideas that are explained in relationship to the next citation, which is Psalm 22. But that block of Scripture, verses 5 through 9 specifically, are thoughts built on the prophetic truths taken from Psalm chapter 8. You can turn to Psalm 8, which we'll reference next. Before we get there directly, I want to draw to your attention a few things of contradistinction. Contradistinction means to set something apart by its contrast or by its differences. And the author of Hebrews draws contradistinctions between the angelic realm, and Jesus Christ and His sufficient work. And at the beginning of this citation, for instance, here's an example, Hebrews 2.5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The author qualifies Jesus by the citations from the Old Testament, but he also qualifies Christ by contrasting His work and His person to the angels. And I want to open with a few notes in this regard. First qualification by contrast that we've covered already in prior weeks was that angels were never the subject of messianic prophecy. When Psalm 8 was written, when Psalm 22 is penned, the author never had in mind a fulfillment that had as its subject angels. The Old Testament messianic prophecies were speaking of some, something different, a being much higher, more singular, only one, only Christ. In Hebrews 1.5, for to which of the angels, here's the rhetorical question raised, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, angels were never the subject of messianic prophecy. 
Namely, they were never the one who would be the focus of our salvation. Or again, continuing in verse 5 of Hebrews 1, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. To whom was the author of this citation addressing in 2 Samuel 7? Well, certainly not an angel. Certainly only Jesus Christ. Again, verse 6, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. And in this citation, we see that angels not only are not the subject, the focus of messianic prophecy, but indeed they are servants. They are there to promote, to declare, and to publish this great work. And so at Christmas that evening, when Christ was born of a virgin, the sky was filled with their declaration, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill to men. Angels were worshiping this Christ. They certainly could not take His place. It goes on to say of the Old Testament passages when it speaks, for instance, in verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This could not have referred to anyone else save Christ, certainly not even the angels. To which of the angels did He say in verse 13, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Secondly, qualifying by contrast, not only were angels never the subject of messianic prophecy, but secondly, angels were created to serve the crown of creation. That is, angels were created to serve or to minister to man. In verse 14 of chapter 1 we read, Are they not, that is, are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thirdly, qualifying Christ by contrast with other heavenly creatures, angels are not the objects of salvation. Or we could say they are not, neither are they the heirs of redemption. Chapter 2 of Hebrews verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels that he, that is the Lord, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Angels are not the object of redemption. Jesus did not die for angels. That is to say, they are not included in the great work of the ransoming souls to eternal life, the regeneration of hearts born again and awakened to newness of life in Christ Jesus. And finally, in our passage this morning, angels are not exalted by right of incarnation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? That is to say that there was no angel that had the exalted place and position, anything akin to Christ, because an angel would not be the incarnate son, who would be the champion of salvation, who would be the object, or I'm sorry, would be the subject of the messianic prophecies, the one who would be offered and who would be the object of salvation, those who received Christ, who would be their Lord and Savior. So we see these qualifications by contrast before the author positively states, here is Christ in the Scriptures. He negatively states, he is no angel can compare to him. And by extension, We can't apply. No other name can compare to Him. 
So again, if angels were never the subject of messianic prophecy, who was? The question rings through the pages to our ears today. Who was the subject of messianic prophecy? If angels were created to serve the crown of creation, who was Lord over the crown of creation? Who was Lord over man, that is? Thirdly, if angels are not the objects of salvation or heirs of salvation, who in fact procures, predestines, and applies salvation? And fourthly, in the context of our text, if angels are not exalted by right of incarnation, who is? Who is exalted by right of incarnation? Who is the only singular preeminent one who is both God and man and secures our hope of eternal life? And the answer to all four questions is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the message of Hebrews. Son of man, the triumphant second Adam, that is Jesus Christ, fulfilling what Adam was called to and did not, and in some degree could not. Jesus Christ is the one higher than any other name, higher than any angel in heaven, higher than any created being. He is the eternal Lord. The incarnate Son of God is the answer to the questions that come from the pages here in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, and He's the answer to man's plight and need for a Savior. Secondly, under Son of Man and triumphant Second Adam, let's now consider Psalm chapter 8. Incarnate Christ and human privilege. In Psalm chapter 8, read with me these verses, just 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In the introduction to this message, I mentioned to you two-stage fulfillment that the author recognizes in these passages. In Psalm chapter 8, the author is David, and to some degree, we see that the theme is the crown of creation, man himself created on day 6, and given dominion over creation. But there is a lingering sense of awe and majesty and privilege that the author expounds upon, and this mystery as never fully realized, cannot be fully realized until we realize it in light, in the context of the incarnation. I'm thankful for the awestruck wonder of a childlike, eye, childlike eyes and heart that I'm reminded of 
sometimes easily lost in the busyness of adult life, when I see my children stare up in the night sky and comment on the stars. Without exception, every one of my six children, before they could talk, would utter words of expression of awe and wonder when they looked up at the sky. We're privileged to live north of the city's light pollution, enough to see the glorious expanse of the Milky Way on every clear night that we simply look up and Many times we'll be arriving at our house, we'll get out of the car, I'll be holding Calvin in my arms perhaps, and the first thing he'll do is snap his head back, look straight up, and utter a few sounds at the glory and majesty that his little eyes are taking in. What his eyes are taking in is just a window, a glimpse of an unfathomably large universe. I have no idea how to state to you or even how to comprehend in the least degree the numbers that are involved, the scope of our universe, its breadth and its power. We can appreciate to some degree the power of a single star because the energy of our world, this globe, depends on the sun and its bright shining. But to think that every one of those innumerable stars that we see on a clear night is a sun at least as big, in most cases bigger, maybe in some cases smaller, as that glowing orb of nuclear energy that illumines this earth every day is just a majestic thought. When we look into the distance as far as our human eyes and the eyes of technology can reach and realize we probably haven't even come close to what can be known And then we look at the pages of Scripture and see that God has given mankind a privileged place in this universe. That disparity of reality is staggering to the psalmist. How is it that mere man has been given dominion over this expanse? When I look at the heavens that are the work of your fingers, and when I look at the expanse that you have made in the skies, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what am I that you are mindful of me and the Son of Man that you care for me? First of all of note is this implicitly clear admission that there is a privileged place in the universe for mankind. This is a staggering thought indeed, and it will always escape the full ability of our mind to fathom why God has given us such favor with Him. Why hasn't He filled this universe with races and races of people? Why has He confined His redemptive work, presumably to one small orb in this vast expanse, and blessed it so? First of all, the author of Psalm chapter 8 and every author in Scripture affirms that there indeed is a place of privilege for humanity within the scope of God's created, with, with, in God's created order and also in redemption. And we should not skip over that too quickly. I wrote down a quote for you. This is from a secular scientist, Edwin Hubble, of whom the Hubble telescope, that famous instrument, is named. He says this, and this is in reference to something I can't understand, but I'll take the scientist's word for, a red shift in the universe indicating a central positioning of our galaxy. In other words, the scientists, the astronomers have 
notice, they've studied that there is, even in science, a testimony to the centrality of our galaxy by some measures. And in this case, a redshift or a refraction of light in some way that indicates even in the cosmology of the universe around us that we are in a privileged position. But this humanistic scientist goes on to say, quote, we look like we are in a favored location, but the evidence of this must be avoided at all cost, as it is a spiritual agenda. Do you notice what this antichrist voice is saying to us from the pagan pages of scientific literature? Saying that there is nothing special about humanity. There is no privileged, redemptive, historical situation of the human race and relationship to all the cosmos. He's denying the words of Psalm 8. He's denying the words of Hebrews 1 and 2. He's saying it looks to be the case, even by our scientific measures, but we need to put this evidence aside. It should be avoided at all costs, as it is a spiritual agenda. Well, mankind in his sin and scientific pagan spiritual blindness can remain deaf, dumb, mute, and unseen to what is obviously the case. But let it not be said among us his own. Let us consider with the authors of Scripture the significance of our situation in the plan of God. There is a mystery and a majesty to human privilege in the created order of God's purposes. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we're something special. Sin has touched every one of us, special in the sense that we do not need redemption or are not utterly depraved and lost in our sins. But what I am saying is there is but one creature that God has created that is uniquely able to commune with Him on the basis of understanding and the application of His Holy Spirit's indwelling such that we can be children of His, brothers of His, sons of God, united with Christ, resurrected in soul and body one day and joined with Him in worship and eternal life. And this is something that the stars will never know. That the vast expanse of the, of the universe will never experience. That those who are blind in their transgressions of sins, unrepentant of heart, will never see or understand. Something that even angels are envious and desirous to look into, but cannot appreciate on the level that the redeemed man can. But the message of Hebrews takes the message of Psalm 8 a step farther and illuminates to us that the incarnation is a secret, is a key to the mystery and majesty of human privilege in the created order. The mystery and majesty of human privilege in the created order finds its fullest expression in the incarnate Christ. When the author of Hebrews speaks of Psalm 8, he doesn't speak of David as taking the first person who am I, a mere psalmist, or even man generally, who is man, that you are mindful of him. But he applies Christ to the first person and says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him. And later he says in verse 8, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who is this him? This is more than David. This is more than mankind generally. This is Christ. We see Christ who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ is the key to understanding the glorious mystery of God's favor. It is in Christ that the greatest fulfillment of Psalm 8 can be understood. You have made Him, Christ, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. And this is why I say that a heading for this may well be the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, His favorite name for Himself, the Son of Man, is the triumphant second Adam. Psalm 8 says of mankind generally, in the immediate context, that all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea, were given to man to have dominion over. Yet man failed in his duty. But there would come a second Adam who would not fail and would indeed surpass the dominion power that Adam could ever dream of. And this is Jesus Christ our Lord. And not only has He redeemed the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate, in placing everything under His feet to the extent of the created realm, but He has put more under His feet. Not just the creatures of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, but He has put death and the grave for every believer under His feet. He has defeated death for everyone in Christ. He has destroyed the dominating effects of sin. He has erased the debt of our transgression that was against us by nailing it to His cross. The incarnate Christ is a key to understanding Psalm chapter 8. The mystery and majesty of human privilege in the created order finds its fullest expression in Jesus Christ who became a man, and who indeed is the full, the final, the consummate proclamation and fulfillment of these prophetic texts. And related idea, under Son of Man and Triumphal Son of Adam, the incarnate Christ and maximal subjugation. And this is what I was referring to earlier, that the subjugation, that is dominion over things under Christ, far surpasses anything that man can do. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That could be read. We do not see everything as of yet in subjection to mere man, but we see him, incarnate man, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So in Psalm chapter 8, As we understand it according to the incarnation, Jesus Christ in the flesh, we see that He is imminently qualified to be the answer, to be the focus, to be the subject of these messianic prophecies. And He is the locus, the center, and He is the answer to the mystery of human privilege in the created order. And through Him is maximal, ultimate subjugation of everything and the created realm, and even in the spiritual realm, underneath His feet. In the second passage this morning of note, in Hebrews 2 is Psalm 22. And again, under the heading, the incarnation explains prophetic text. 
after going over Psalm chapter 8 and understanding it in light of the incarnation, the author then moves on to Psalm chapter 22. He says in verses 10 through 13, reading again, for it was fitting that he, again we're speaking of the triune God here, and so these pronouns need to be affixed accordingly, and we'll get into that in a moment. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Pause there and turn to Psalm chapter 22. As you're turning there, let me try briefly to assign some identity to the pronouns in the two verses prior, verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here in Psalm 22 and its explanation in Hebrews 2, we have concepts like the Trinity, God in three persons, sovereignty, in Him and through Him, of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. We find written in other passages, Romans chapter 11, by whom, for whom and by whom all things exist. We find in similar language in Hebrews chapter 2. We have the triune nature of God to consider in this context. We have the sovereignty to consider. And then we have this identity, uh, this language, sons of glory, to consider in Hebrews 2, 10 through 11. And consider, it in the, uh, consider those pronouns and those identities as follows. For it was fitting that He, God the Father who plans, for whom and by whom all things exist, that is, all things exist for the glory of God. And God the Father in His perfect plan ordained that He would bring many sons to glory. The many sons there are you and I, if you are in Christ today, if you are a recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ, if He has changed your heart of stone to one of flesh, if you are born again, then this is speaking of you. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Founder of their salvation then refers to the second person of the Trinity, namely Christ. Christ again, incarnation. The incarnate Christ who became man and in so doing became the fulfillment or the complete and perfect sacrifice for us. In referring to perfection of Christ, this is a term that does not refer to that which was imperfect in the sense of sinful or broken and in disrepair, needing repair or holiness added to it, but instead the necessary steps according to the foreknowledge of God and the covenant of redemption unfolding in time in order that Christ might be the efficient sacrifice for our sins. That is, the founder of our salvation, Christ, was made perfect through suffering. That is, Him taking on flesh and living a perfect life 
and then being subject to the wrath of God on the cross, became the perfect sacrifice according to the plan of God the Father for whom and by whom all things exist to do something, to bring many sons to glory. And these many sons are then referred to in verse 11, and by those for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And there it refers to Christ and those who are in Christ in verse 11. He who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, all who are in Him, all have one origin, the glorious plan of God. All have one origin in God the Father's perfect plan. That is why He, again, is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see the title of this message coming forward in those ideas incarnational family ties. You see, it is because of the incarnation that we are brothers with Christ. It is because of Christ's incarnation that we are welcomed into God's presence and favor as sons to glory. It is because of the incarnation that we are sanctified. And so the incarnation of Jesus Christ makes possible the filial or family relationship of us to Jesus Christ. And this language is replete throughout Scripture. We are the bride of Christ. Speaking of the church, Christ is our bridegroom. We are sons and daughters. We are adopted. We are the offspring of Abraham. We are brothers. We are in relationship with Him in this way because Of the incarnation. Now, in citing Psalm 22 and just one verse, it should not go without notice that the context of Psalm 22 is of utmost importance. Our second point here under the heading incarnation explains three prophetic texts. When it comes to Psalm 22, we understand brothers, our brotherhood with Christ, in the context of the conquest of Calvary, because that is the theme of Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm 22, listen to these familiar words. You've heard them here, and you've heard them in the account of the cross in the Gospels. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And you see again this two-stage illumination of this text. It was written by David. But now the author of Hebrews is attaching Christ to the first person. My God, my God, who is doing the speaking? It is Christ. Christ said as much on the cross, and here we have the prophetic record of Calvary, the conquest of Calvary, the incarnation that led to the work of redemption that made possible our family relationship to God Almighty. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. And in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 6, but I, again, first person. And the author of Hebrews identifies Christ with this prophecy. Am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And we're reminded that he became a curse for us. He became sin, as it were, for us that He might 
bear the wrath of God in substitution for the elect and become our Savior. But verse 7 records more of the events and following that happened indeed in this moment. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And we're reminded of the mocking voices when Christ hung on the cross, when scribes and Pharisees and others said, If you are the Christ, come down from there. Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And again, these intonations uh, that are best understood in the incarnation of Christ. Be not far from me. The voice cries in verse 11, for trouble is near and, not, and there is none to help. He goes on to talk about his enemies surrounding him like unruly wild beasts. He talks about his heart melting within him. And as Christ's side is stabbed by the sword, we see its fulfillment in the pages of the gospel. He talks about the evildoers who pierced his hands and feet in verse 16. You can count my bones, they stare and gloat over me. He talks about the gambling for his garments in verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And here's our quotation, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And that is the quotation that is cited in Hebrews chapter 2. Again, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So who is it that sanctifies? It is Christ. And how does he sanctify? It is through the conquest of Calvary. His pierced side, his pierced hands and feet. It's the jeering and the mocking of the onlookers. It is his heart melting like wax within him. It is the suffering and death of the incarnate Son of God that reconciles, that sanctifies, that adopts those who are in Christ to their Father God and renders them, justifies them, and makes them, anoints them, sons to glory. Those who are being sanctified, spiritual offspring of Abraham, brothers with our Lord Jesus Christ. The conquest of Calvary is the means that the incarnation enabled for us to become the brothers of Jesus. The first half of Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21, that we just read, most of, tells us the cost of this transaction. The cost of brotherhood is prophesied in this messianic psalm. The second half, Psalm 22, verses 22 through 31, continues with the legacy of brotherhood. And the author takes verse 22 as his citation, which is right at the pivotal point. The author of Psalm 22, David, says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 20, 21. 
Then verse 22, at that pivotal verse, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then it continues, you who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him, stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. This language continues, all those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And verse 26, may your hearts live forever. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The last verse, they shall come and proclaim this, his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The conquest of Calvary is stated in poetic and prophetic form in Psalm 22. And it delineates in the first half the cost of brotherhood. And in the second, the legacy of brotherhood. And it glorifies the Lord and proclaims Christ in the glorious aftermath and legacy of His work on Calvary. There's a theme that is woven throughout Hebrews. First of all, humiliation where Christ comes in His incarnate state, condescends to us. And secondly, from that point of humiliation, He goes to the cross and He bears the weight of our sin and the wrath that we deserved. But then there's resurrection, exaltation. Then there's glorification, going to the Father. And this is the shape of all of Scripture. This is the shape of your redeemed life in Christ. This is the shape of Psalm 22. This is the shape of Hebrews. We are brothers with Christ because of the conquest of Calvary. Because of what he suffered, we have freedom, glory, and union, eternal life, and heaven to look forward to, or we will celebrate his lordship over every enemy, including death, the grave, and sin itself. Finally, this morning, the incarnation explains a third prophetic text. And this one is Isaiah 8, 17, so you can turn there. And in Hebrews chapter 2, this text is quoted in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Who's putting his trust in God? Who and whose children are putting their trust in the Lord? Well, again, there's a two-stage fulfillment of this text as well. The first answer is Isaiah himself, as this is originally recorded. And the second answer is Christ and his children, you and I, in him. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, we read these same words. First of all, verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. The context of this prophecy in Isaiah, again, is necessary to understand the context of its citation in Hebrews. There was a time during Isaiah's ministry, where the nation of Israel was apostate. It was living in discontinuity with covenant. It had broken faithfulness with their Lord, 
and now judgment was coming. But even in this time of judgment for their sins, there was yet lingering a promise of reconciliation, return from exile, and redemption for the people of God. And so in this context, even as Isaiah proclaims judgment, he also declares that there is a hope on the horizon. So for Isaiah, similar to Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. The house of Jacob may be rejected generally and geopolitically as the nations like Assyria and Babylon are raised up as judgment against them. But my household, Isaiah says, so far as it goes for me and my children, we will put our trust in the Lord of hosts. Why could Isaiah do this? And what was the basis and ground of his confidence? Well, Isaiah was touched by the Lord and anointed by him. He was set apart for the work of the ministry. He had the assurance of the Lord's favor upon him by the revelation of God Almighty. The seraphim flew to him in verse, or chapter 6, having in their hand a burning coal. He had taken it with the tongs from the altar. He had touched his mouth and he had said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken, taken away and your sins and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah was in a unique position. As a believer, as an atoned for believer, even at this time. But Isaiah's position was not as unique and not as important as the fulfillment of this prophecy later, namely Christ. You see, Isaiah represented his home. He had two sons at least that we read of in Scripture, and their names are significant. And when he stood before the Lord, he was interceding on behalf of himself and his household. But there would come a second intercessor a second father of sons who would stand and intercede on behalf of his household. And this is Christ. And this is what the author of Hebrews continues to labor and, unf- and unfold through the course of his, gospel, of his proclamation of the gospel to the church, that Jesus Christ is the intercessory high priest. And so then we can read Isaiah's words as follows. Christ says, I will put my trust In God the Father, behold, I, in the first person Christ, and the children God has given me. I mentioned two children that Isaiah had. The first, his name was Sher Jashab, I believe. And his name meant, a remnant shall return. There was prophetic identity given to the names of Isaiah's children. When Isaiah cries out in 8.17, I and these two children... At least we place our trust in you. He was speaking of Sheer Jashub. A remnant shall return. He had a second child, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And that's a hard one. I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. In Isaiah 8, 3 through 8, we find reference to his, to the prophetic situation of his birth and identity. It says, and I went. Isaiah speaking to the prophetess, she conceived and bore a son, speaking of his wife in this case. And the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again because his people have refused the waters of Shiloh. 
that flowed gently and rejoiced over Rezin, the son of Remalia. Uh, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the kings of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There's three names of import in these passages surrounding Isaiah 8, 17. Sheer, Jashub, Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz, and the third one I'm sure you'll recognize, Emmanuel. The name of Isaiah's first son meant, a remnant shall return. The name of Meher Shalohashbaz meant, spoil speeds, pray hastes. That is, we are living in a land and a time of judgment. There is imminent judgment that's hanging over our heads. That which we trusted in is spoiling now. The spoil speeds, our crops and our security is rotting and fading and withering around us. Pray haste, that is, we are running from our pursuers. We are in an escape mode. We're not in a prosperity mode. But there is also in the names of His sons an indication of hope on the horizon. Yet a remnant shall return. That is, taking the names together, though we hasten away because of the spoiling circumstances, a remnant shall return. There is a third and mysterious son a third and mysterious child that is referred to in the book of Isaiah. But it is not mysterious in New Covenant fulfillment. Matthew 1, 23 says as much. And we know this name as Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel is referred to in chapter 8, verse 8, as we just read. But also turning back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we have another reference. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This third and mysterious son is referred to a third time perhaps when we see this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government, and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we see... When Isaiah references his household and says to the Lord, All that I and my household represent take refuge in you. There is interwoven prophetic picture that there is a judgment to be reckoned with. But there's a promise of a remnant that will return. And this promise is manifest in Emmanuel, the mysterious third son, God with us, who would come in the future. And in ultimate fulfillment be Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. So children and the prophetic progeny, the prophetic children of Isaiah himself are explained and take on new weight and reality as we see them in the, through the eyes, through the lens of the incarnation. There is resolution 
and reconciliation of these things in Christ. That is the spoil that has sped into our heart, sin itself, and the prey that is hastened, as it's referred in context here as the devil and death itself. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Though death was our pursuer, and though sin was our master, and though slavery was our future, all of these have changed. And we have been redeemed and set free from exile in Emmanuel, the incarnate Son, God with us. In closing, our author continues in his first-person identification of Christ with Isaiah and with the psalmist to expound the implications for the incarnate Son's own children. In those two verses I read, it speaks of the children of Emmanuel. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, we are made of flesh and blood. He himself, Christ likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. The one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We find in this passage, since Christ has come, we have incarnational, through His incarnation, family ties to the Lord. We are now His children. Since Christ not only came, but shared in flesh and blood, that is, in His incarnation, it is by His flesh and blood that we are set free from slavery to the power and to the fear of death. And these communion elements represent that very fact this morning. The communion elements are symbolic of the incarnation. In Christ's broken body and in His shed blood, we have the incarnational price paid for our own redemption. We have the answer to our exile. We have, sl- we have release from slavery. We have the promise of eternal life. Let's transition in prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the riches and depth revealed of Your person, Your work, the prophecies, Your Word, and the price that was paid on Calvary for our justification and for our subsequent sanctification. We thank You, Lord, for the picture of communion which reunites our senses and our experience with the reality of what Christ has already done, that moment on Calvary, where the cost of our brotherhood was paid in full. May every person, Lord, who partakes in communion today, realize the legacy of your brotherhood brotherhood now continues in and through them, inasmuch as you have ransomed them from captivity to sin and set them free from the law of sin and death, free to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, looking forward to their own resurrection one day. Help us to remember and proclaim these truths in communion today. In Jesus' holy name, amen.